Good morning and welcome to a special edition of Entrepreneurial Realities, the podcast of the Venture Lab of the Munich Technical University. My name is Antoine Le Boyer and I'm the Managing Director of the Software and AI Tomb Venture Lab. We are joined today with Professor Bill Salman of the Harvard Business School, where he headed and started the Entrepreneurship Department. His work, his research has been very far reaching and many generations of entrepreneurs have been directly or indirectly influenced by his teaching. For this special guest, I'm joined by two Professor Hannah Milanov, who teaches entrepreneurship at TUM, sits on the board of CDTM. She teaches case study written by Professor Salman and has kindly accepted to join me for this interview. Professor Milanov, Professor Salman, welcome to Entrepreneurial Realities. Thank you. Thank you, Anton. Can I start with the first question to Bill? Can you explain and give your definition of entrepreneurship? Well, uh, my colleague Howard Stevenson uh, started in the late 70s and early 80s to try to understand the word entrepreneurship. Uh, as you know, it's uh, had many interpretations over the years, some associated with starting a company, some associated with a personality trait. Uh, there was actually research that said you had to have a domineering mother in order to be an entrepreneur. Uh, lots of association with uh, innovation and with risk-taking. And Howard had a unique insight uh, that we've all built on, which was that entrepreneurship was about the pursuit of opportunity beyond the resources currently controlled. And I really had in mind the distinction between people who said, where can I create and capture customer value? What resources do I need in order to do that effectively uh, over time to compete uh, successfully? And that was distinguished uh, from more administrative or managerial orientation, which was often about protecting or optimizing the resources you already had. So as opposed to trying to create a new car company by outsourcing uh, manufacturing and design and batteries and everything, uh, you might try to build barriers to trade to protect your existing plants and ways of doing business. So one group is uh, focused almost not completely in the rear view mirror and the others focused on uh, what do customers need? What do businesses need? How can I improve processes? And that core idea about entrepreneurship as a way of managing, of focusing on opportunity uh, is what has motivated uh, those of us at Harvard Business School and beyond. You also, if I may uh, step in, you also have insisted on hypothesis formulation and iteration. Can you sure. explain this also beyond the, the Howard Stevenson definition? Sure. Well, uh, part of that relates to the notion of risk taking. Um, in our world, uh, we've observed uh, probably more sharply than in the past, risk is everywhere. And entrepreneurship is about managing the relationship between risk and reward. Uh, again, without risk, there is no reward. And so um, what entrepreneurs do is they try to have a hypothesis about the ability to create and capture customer value. 
they create a test that will give them insights into whether their strategy and ideas actually have traction. Uh, in a sense, uh, there was the old saying that time is money, and in our world, money is time. You buy time to produce information on the basis of which you and your team and investors can make the next decision uh, that leads down the path to success or causes you to abandon. So for us, uh, the process of entrepreneurship is not about predicting, it's about discovering. It's about trying to create uh, a set of tests that reveal true value-changing information that really act as a, uh, a better detailed map of what you ought to do. And it's a process that can lead in very different ways. Uh, I often give the example of uh, one of our graduates who started a birthing center in San Diego. He had a particular idea about how to do that better than the existing uh, models. And I think his idea was absolutely correct, but he and his colleagues couldn't get paid because the interface with the insurance companies and the billing codes and all of that was so complex. And so um, one member of the team wrote some code to manage the doctor's office. They eventually became a doctor office management software company called Athena Health, which was purchased a year or so ago for $6 billion. So, you run a, a test about the birthing center, you discover there's a bigger problem in there and something that other companies really need. And you go with that opportunity. So that's the hypothesis formation test, respond, go to the next step. And frankly, if you look at uh, companies that have been successful, Amazon being a very good example, Jeff Bezos is the best experimentalist in the world. There were thousands of tests being run every day inside Amazon. And all you had to do was to operate in his uh, rules, simple rules. Does it increase customer choice? Does it decrease price? And does it decrease the time required to get something to customers? And if you did that, then you could run an experiment. It could fail. As long as you learned something useful and did the right thing second, uh, indeed, you had to have a high rate of failure in order to uh, become as successful as Amazon did. So, Thank you for that example. And uh, also uh, going back to the definition where you started off by contrasting the entrepreneurial orientation from the managerial orientation, um, I think definitions are you know, students will sometimes hate them because they think there's something you have to memorize, but I think definitions are so powerful because they direct your attention to something, right? Is it right. about changing your personality or your mother's domineering uh, personality in this case, <laughs> which is hard to do? Or can you actually focus on a set of behaviors and things that are potentially even trainable things and, and advance yourself that way? And along those lines, I was curious if you would mind commenting. I've been reading a very interesting study which was looking at the, how the media talks about entrepreneurship versus management and it showed that media outlets uh, specifically new york times and financial times in this case actually use more positive language when talking about founders and entrepreneurs than when they talk about managers and executives and so me and my colleagues were inspired by that and also checked whether academics 
speak more positively in entrepreneurship outlets, such as sure. Journal of Business Venturing and Entrepreneurship Theory Practice. And lo and behold, we find that we do have a more positive vocabulary sure. than, than Academy Management Journal or Administrative Science Quarterly. And I know how much you care about causation versus correlation, as any good academic could do. <laughs> and so I'm curious about your perspective. Um, you know, are we just building up a trend of entrepreneurship as a positive force and thereby influencing how people think about it? Or is it really that nowadays opportunities can really just be more positively shaped by entrepreneurial behaviors um, versus managerial behaviors as we know them? You know, first of all, it's a fascinating issue about how the press interprets a set of actions. And we see in the US uh, today, particularly, that there's a movement against success. And what I mean by that is Facebook is now the enemy, Google is the enemy, Microsoft is the enemy. Uh, Apple still retains a bit of the Steve Jobs uh, magic. Um, but so that may be shifting because the rewards to entrepreneurial action in a world of network effects and uh, massive economies of scale may be so high that it attracts the enmity of uh, the press and academics. Um, in general, I think of economies as necessarily having a mix of different things in them. They have to have competent large companies doing things that large companies can do. Um, it could be manufacturing or distributing at scale. They need um, a set of entrepreneurs whose job it is to find ways to disrupt, uh, to create and capture value, uh, whether it's using new technology or new business models. Again, uh, going back to Amazon, Amazon, uh, there were other booksellers. Uh, the idea of selling things online was not new. Uh, and Barnes and Noble was a formidable uh, competitor with prime locations and a great brand. But Jeff Bezos was able to do something where he would, uh, you would order a book and pay for it online. It would be shipped immediately. And then he wouldn't pay the supplier of the book for 60 days. And he didn't have to have lots of inventory on his balance sheet. And he didn't have to have prime real estate uh, locations. So he had a business model innovation that was much less capital intensive than the Barnes and Noble model. And that shift ended up changing the options for customers and suppliers in, in disruptive ways that were harmful to some and good for others. Um, but we need in the economy at any moment in time, a mix of things in which people are trying to find new opportunities and disrupt incumbents. We need incumbents and large company and government to be competent and uh, doing the things they should do. And uh, so I think of entrepreneurship as a vital and critical force, not the only force that's positive in an economy, but a critical part dealing with change and we'll talk increasingly about doing things that make the world a better place uh, as a force uh, in which entrepreneurs are going to play a dominant role, I think. And it's, uh, this brings me to another topic because uh, I think uh, 
it's interesting you mentioned you know how we need business model innovation and if you take um, Guy Kawasaki uh, seriously he says you know you want business model innovation you ask women and obviously when it comes to entrepreneurship venture capital especially high-tech context diversity is a topic that is big today but unfortunately yeah. we're still not seeing as much momentum um, on that um, as we maybe would wish and in that sense Obviously, biases do creep in, and the examples you've shown, you know, Amazon, Facebook, Googles, etc., is is sure. dominated by by white men uh, image, at least of what an entrepreneur could be. And so, while universities are working in their ways in these biases, and venture capitalists are subscribing and trying to create some awareness as well, etc., um, I'm curious uh, from your perspective, do you see where the biggest way could be that we actually move the needle um, on this diversity topic? Uh, so that it doesn't become just one of these topics that people get tired of at some points and maybe even media gets tired of at some point and it sort of gets um, under the carpet. Well, uh, the first comment would be that um, the world is comprised of many different genders, races, uh, and the like. And, you know, a big shift over the years has been to democratize access on both sides, on the supply and demand side. And inevitably that's going to change uh, the nature of business and where opportunities are. So, um, you know, I, uh, and I see certainly at Harvard Business School, a dramatic shift in the number of women starting companies, the number of uh, people of color starting companies. And I think it's because People now are focused more on can you accomplish something important and not stereotyping you in a way that is dysfunctional. Uh, so I see, I see that opening up dramatically, um, frankly, in the U.S., but I'm sure around the world. I certainly see it in Endeavor, where I'm involved, which tries to encourage entrepreneurship in emerging markets. And if you look at the Endeavor entrepreneurs, it's a much more diverse crowd than would ever have been uh, true 20 years ago. So, you know, we, uh, uh, Tom Eisenman has a case on Rent the Runway about renting uh, cocktail dresses and other uh, business clothing rather than owning it. Uh, that fundamental process of renting rather than owning has been a driving force in the global economy. You know, whether it's uh, sort of the Uber rideshare model or um, uh, even in lots of different areas. And so you see that I wouldn't necessarily have seen the, the idea that renting cocktail dresses would be a viable business, but uh, uh, Jen and Jennifer, the two founders, ran tests, they discovered there was a market, they figured out how to get supply, they figured out how to run dry cleaning logistics, and they built a business going public uh, recently. Now, honestly, I think uh, there's no distinction between men and women these days in their ability to find something that needs to be done. And so that's just an example in, in which they were disproportionately able uh, and well suited to do what they did. So, if, if I'm may, just still... if I may add, um, I have a rostrum of 45 teams that work with me, and a very large number of them are 
run, not only in, in by, by, by female founder. Probably my best team is run by uh, a Russian woman, uh, sorry, a German first generation coming from Russia who is really unbelievable. And I have also noticed that probably half of the team are staffed with first generation German coming from abroad. Sure. So entrepreneurship is still something which is an unbelievable way for people who want to actually make it to break the barriers and bring more wealth sure. to and diversity to society. Well, I think of it more as a meritocracy based uh, world. And when I say that, I really uh, believe me, there are so many um, systemic elements of any economy that have one group having power relative to another. It's hard to break in. But going back to the very first thing we talked about, I think entrepreneurship is a model for breaking in uh, with new ideas, new ways of organizing uh, to accomplish something. And so I see that uh, spreading across the, the global economy, frankly. Um, and certainly we see it in the mix of students at the business school or anywhere. So would there be any tips that you could give, for example, Technical University of Munich, based on your good experience at Harvard, um, on how to increase this uh, appeal? I mean, one thing you obviously mentioned is creating great role models, uh, such as the Rent of Runaway um, example, and we, we have a few over here as well. Uh, would there be any other tips that you could give us, either as you know, people shaping the ecosystem, such as Antoine, um, myself as a faculty member, or um, others in the ecosystem, maybe even investors? Yeah. So. Um... First of all, I've introduced a new course uh, called Entrepreneurial Solutions to World Problems. And uh, the basic idea is that the world has an infinite supply of problems and uh, uh, fortunately entrepreneurs view problems as opportunities. So let's just take a technical set of issues. One third of the course deals with climate change. And uh, frankly, uh, just to give an illustration, there are 25 nuclear startups. And I understand that uh, nuclear became a very complicated issue over the past 10 or 12 years, uh, partly with Fukushima, uh, Fukushima. But the reality is that at scale, modular nuclear designed in the current context will absolutely have to be part of the solution in places like India and China, because if everyone keeps building a coal-fired plant uh, every two weeks, the world is doomed. So, uh, and one of the key startups was an MIT startup uh, with a, a man and woman as the co-founders. And so I don't think that there's no reason why people can't do nuclear power. There's no reason why they can't invent new ways to deliver better health at lower cost. There's no reason why people can't uh, deliver better educational outcomes at lower cost and in less time. So I don't think of those kinds of, of issues as, as defining who's on the team. Rather, I think they define, they will be defined by who executes who goes through that hypothesis, test, respond, cycle successfully. And so I'm quite optimistic about people's ability and willingness uh, to go into making the world a better place. 
I will have as my forthcoming guest on the podcast, Rabbi Van Katessen, who was in my study group and my class, and who founded in India the game Global Alliance for Mass Entrepreneurship. Sure. And this is very important to describe to the TUM student that entrepreneurship is really about trying to get societal advancement. And he's giving very good example about that. Yeah, uh, so um, let me give an example of um, a company that I have a new case on. It's a company called Guild Education. And it's a, an attempt to solve the following problem. Uh, so basically in the US, uh, companies, large companies often offer their employees, frontline employees, subsidized access to education. Uh, but they leave it up to the employee to go get a degree or go take a course, and then the company reimburses them for that. Well, that's a little odd to have an employee lend money to Walmart to get something that's in Walmart's best interest and the employees. So what Guild does is it's created a marketplace. On the one side, there are educational providers who are curated, very high quality. On the other side, Walmart's employees can get access to courses and or degrees, micro degrees that advance their own personal uh, careers or self-esteem or whatever it might be that ultimately are helpful to Walmart in recruiting and retaining and advancing and reskilling employees. And the academic providers use this guild education platform as a way to get motivated uh, students where there's been a good match between what they do and what the student wants. So it solves uh, three problems. It solves the employee problem. It solves the company problem. It solves the uh, academic supplier problem. And that marketplace, uh, they probably now raise three or four hundred million dollars. Rachel Carlson, uh, the entrepreneur, is one of the uh, most remarkable entrepreneurs building a great team that I have ever worked with. And that's the kind of activity where you have an issue about how do people get access to high quality education that solves a goal or, or accomplishes a goal that they believe deeply in. So it's just, um, and you know, for Walmart, they turned something that was uh, sort of not working very well, only 1% uh, take up in the company to something where they talk about free education for all their frontline employees, which is something I think we all can embrace. And this model does it much better than any other model I've seen. Thank you for that inspirational example. I think, uh, I hope our TUM students can actually really find themselves in your words in terms of getting their strengths together and diversity together around important problems. And uh, there's with, um, the second part of the definition definitely kicks in and where your expertise kicks in, which is beyond resources currently controlled. Um, and the question being, you know, as an expert who's written a lot about entrepreneurial finance, what would you suggest to our students? What are the key questions they should ask themselves when thinking about getting resources to fund the venture? Sure. So the, uh, let me helicopter up and just talk about the world today versus the world 25 years ago. 
Sadly, I can also talk about the world 40 years ago, but I'll pick 25. <laughs> um, the cost of experimentation has dropped to near zero, even in capital intensive industries. So uh, you can get uh, simulations, you can get time on machine tools, you can uh, run tests on the web to see whether or not your particular idea can get traction. So the first thing I think it's incumbent on all of us to teach our students to look for opportunity everywhere because they can run tests that don't involve large amounts of resources. Second, uh, the markets have gotten much bigger. We've gone from relatively small domestic markets, pretty slow rates of change, to something where we have seven and a half billion people who are uh, accessible. And you see this with a Facebook having almost 3 billion users around the world. So uh, access to customers has become much easier than it was before. And then money has been democratized. So uh, for a long time, it was a specialized group of people who were willing to put money into ventures and risk uh, losing that money. And now I think uh, many, many more people understand that yes, you're going to lose money, but you can make more money on the winners. So the current failure rate in venture capital funds is 60%. 60% of the companies go out of business, but you make enough money on the 40% that survive, some of which do actually quite well. Uh, so I think what's, what everyone should focus on is that you can get access to resources broadly defined, people, uh, partners, ways to test your ideas. You can get access to money because it's not very costly to run the first few experiments. And you can get access to money because the consequences of success are so overwhelming relative to the risks. And the final thing, I think people are naturally risk averse, particularly uh, young people who end up in universities and are trying to get their degree and advance into a career. But uh, there is no risk in failure unless you caused it. There is no risk. Uh, good people, honest people, hardworking, smart people can get a job the next day. And we see this in uh, all around the world with labor shortages. But uh, instead of viewing a failure as a life career ending event, it becomes an element of experience in your life. And people value experience, particularly when you fail on someone else's nickel. Uh, <laughs> but that means you might be better prepared uh, to navigate to success in a new opportunity. Uh, this is inspirational and something I think at least on average, I would say is something that um people in Germany or Europe more broadly are still grappling with a bit more than a, a typical US uh, um, entrepreneurial mind would. And in that spirit, I was curious, uh, obviously you've mentioned that you have a luxury of a great perspective of the industry development, uh, the venture capital as such. I mean, in the 1970s, it just sort of started emerging in the 80s, you had some funds and nowadays um, sure. it has propagated around the world. 
Um, and I still feel that while VCs have been around for a while, the industry is still somehow shrouded in some sort of mystique of what sure. happens behind the curtain. Um, sure. So what would you say are the still most common myths of venture capital that are propagated somehow and should be dispelled for our audience um, here and now? Well, the first thing is, um, and I see this in a lot of schools, they teach that venture capitalists uh, are to be avoided. They take too much of your company, they exercise too much control, they want to fire you at the quickest uh, moment when something goes wrong. And I would say that 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 can be true. But my experience is that if you raise money from people uh, who, who don't do that, who work with entrepreneurs to navigate through uh, hard times and to help in good times, who really focus on things they can do, for example, attracting other key managers. Uh, when a venture capital firm has done hundreds of early stage ventures, uh, they know people who are terrific at uh, being the CFO or being the VP of uh, marketing or engineering. So, uh, and because the key to success is the quality of the team you ultimately assemble, then they become almost like the best executive recruiting partner you could have. They also, um, you know, again, there's another issue around getting access to money. If you raise money from a bunch of uh, angels, as an example, raising the first tranche of money is not the goal of the company. Getting to the end of the process in which you might have had to raise four or five rounds of money is the goal. And if you do things at the beginning that decrease the likelihood you can get access to future resources, then you will handicap the firm. So uh, what I think is that uh, you want to pick partners, not investors. You should view them as a critical part of the team. And uh, today you have lots more choices. So there's competition amongst suppliers of capital. And that uh, has really accrued to the benefit of entrepreneurs around the world. They get much better terms today than they have uh, in the past 25 years. Which I think brings me to the next question. It's interesting. Uh, while I've heard VCs talk that it's never been as easy to raise money for entrepreneurs as it, as it is today, um, I still find that uh, there's so much sort of heuristic advice running around. And when founders sure. even start talking about VCs, um, they'll say, oh, I just need to raise as much money when I don't need it and get as much sure. as you can in the first round. Sure. But of course, keep all of the control of the company. Don't let them sink in their teeth into it at sure. all. So sure. what do you see as some of the key mistakes entrepreneurs make when actually approaching sure. these in the early on? What's the ill advice they follow? If you uh, well, look, um, I see a lot more entrepreneurs trying to create multiple classes of stock to protect their ability to continue to run the company. And um, the way I think about it is even if an entrepreneur owns 60% of a company, if it runs out of money, it's worthless. So at the end of the day, you have to end up with something that's a substantive, important, and successful. 
And the key thing you want to do is to raise money from people who don't panic when you tell them that you're behind schedule and need more money. Uh, you don't want people who pull the trigger quickly on changing management or blaming people for what's happening. You want people who roll up their sleeves and try to understand how, the, how you can find a path to success. So again, when I described this company, Athena Health, that went from a birthing center to a software company, the first idea basically failed, but the team had the faith and trust of the investors who said, well, that's a pretty good idea. We believe in you. We're going to give you new money to go run that experiment. And that's the model of, of how you raise money and do everything you can do to increase the likelihood of success and decrease the likelihood of falling off the cliff. And, you know, companies don't run out of money. They run out of trust. So that's a powerful uh, quote. Maybe you can so repeat it. That's what, that's what the world is all about. That's true of teams and it's true of customers and it's true of suppliers. You run out of trust. And that's what causes companies to fail. Which brings me to uh, remembering one fantastic read that you've uh, written a while ago, but still I would say a classic, how to write a great business plan. So sure. although the, the term business plan has sort of run out of fashion a little bit, uh, sure. but uh, if you read the actual piece, the lessons are very much alive. You introduce the people opportunity context and, and risk reward concept and um, develop quite a humorous glossary of business plan terms, such as uh, we have no competition and if we can only get that 10% of the markets and <laughs> similar things, uh, which we still hear on an occasion today. Um, I was just curious, if you were rewriting this article today, would there be anything that you would change or reimagine as you think about a successful entrepreneur today or even you know, looking into the future? Well, um... As I said, I started studying entrepreneurship in the early 1980s. It was a tiny field. Um, it was uh, something in which I think mainstream strategists imagined that if you could just get the five forces right, uh, you had the keys to the uh, kingdom. Um, and I always thought, uh, there were some ways to break down the elements of any venture. This could be inside government or inside a company, it didn't matter. And that was the people inside and surrounding the company could be the investors. The opportunity, what was your idea, how you were going to test it, were there benefits of scale, were there ways to create barriers to competition? Uh, the context, the set of things outside of your control, like the macro economy or regulations. And then the deal, which uh, was very broad. It wasn't just the deal with the people who supplied money, but it was the deal with your employees and your customers. You know, did you give discounts for early payment? And uh, the three questions I got students to ask were what can go wrong, what can go right? And given that, how do you manage the relationship between risk and reward, trying to protect against the things that can go wrong and making the things that can go right more likely to occur? And it was a dynamic uh, model in the sense that at any moment in time, 
you had a team, you had an opportunity, you had deals, you had a context. But what you really were in the business of was trying to recruit new and better people uh, to be sure you could gain access to financial and other resources, that you had modified your strategy to affect what the competition and others had done so that you have the ability to continue to create and capture customer value and just trying to play with the quality of the team, the quality of the financing, the quality of the opportunity, all within a context of things, uh, you know, like the evolution of technology that would end up as a winning outcome. And the idea of a business plan was not to write a magnificent document with, uh, you know, in, in German, we would put all the verbs at the end, uh, but in the U.S., you might uh, run that differently. And it has evolved to a pitch deck, but at the end of the day, it still has people, opportunity, <laughs> context, and deal, and a description of a set of uh, hypotheses and testing that will get you to some future state that people believe is worthy of trying to get to. Hmm. So, you know, um, go if you go back, uh, one of the great uh, pitch decks that's available on the web is the Uber, the original Uber pitch deck. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Uber's case, they had an idea, which is that people would want to use their Blackberries, again, an ancient term, to be able to get a lemma and the, they could communicate with the drivers. And Uber bought uh, two Mercedes um, limousines and their uh, goal in expanding was to buy more Mercedes limousines. And they were gonna save money by buying used Mercedes limousines. And it was an intention to build up a large fleet of cars and connect them using software and uh, Blackberries. Well, that was a bad idea. And quickly they learned that they shouldn't own the cars, not that they shouldn't own Mercedes, which uh, I'm sure I'm in favor of. But then it became a way to use a software platform to connect uh, cars and drivers they didn't control, again, this access to resources beyond what you currently control. Um, and that became a business now worth $90 billion because it led to delivery and it led to lots of other uh, elements of the business. So, so again, a business plan is not intended to be uh, a static description and a perfect prediction it's intended to be a blueprint for how you think and describing a market in which there might be a great opportunity for the company if it does lots of things right and has a wee bit of luck, as they would say. Many of the, the work that we, we do at the Venture Lab is to work with engineers and not necessarily business, quote unquote, students. Do you see a difference in approach from um, a business about business-led opportunity and what we would call here a deep tech opportunity. Sure. So at the end of the day, um, often the distinction between something that's a deep tech or a low tech kind of opportunity 
because every opportunity today is tech-based. That is, I can't think of an opportunity that doesn't involve AI and uh, better computing and using the tools of access that have been uh, uh, created over the years. Deep tech simply uh, is slightly more expensive and complicated to reveal the next valuable piece of information. So again, if I have a way to make a better solar cell, you know, I'm gonna use a tandem cell that can take more of the spectrum of solar uh, light and convert it to energy. I can't do that with uh, a few thousand dollars in a lab typically. I have to make a device and making the first device might cost $5 million or $10 million. And that's very different from testing a website uh, where I can throw up the website and I can attract some users and see whether or not uh, it works. So, but at the end of the day, you need the right team, you need the right suppliers, you need the right customers, early adopters. I'm writing a case on a company called QuantumScape. QuantumScape is developing a solid state battery and they, they're, one of their lar largest investors is Volkswagen. And Volkswagen has signed a purchase agreement effectively to help build plants and bring the technology to bear. The batteries, if they can be produced at scale, have twice the energy density. They have very long cycle life and they can be recharged fully or to 85% in 15 minutes. So, Again, that company took 10 years to get to the point where they really had a solid, uh, a, a high likelihood of success in developing a battery, not only that worked in the lab, but could work in a car. And they got Volkswagen, who has enormous uh, expertise in manufacturing at scale and wanted to get a competitive advantage by being the first user of these batteries that will transform electric vehicles. So you still need the best people, you still need lots of money, you need lots of time, you're gonna make mistakes, you're gonna go down blind alleys, and you need partners who trust you to figure out the right path. It's the same process, nothing changes. It's just the, the dollars, euros, uh, or whatever uh, shift. And let me ask you the usual question that we, we end our podcast with. Um, what would be the advice you would give to our listeners? Well, uh, the advice is almost always of two parts. Uh, one part is just be aware of opportunities. Uh, you know, I... I Students often say, well, how do you find one? I said, well, they're everywhere. <laughs> uh, ask, uh, why can't, why does it cost so much? Why does it take so long? Why is this such a crummy, bad experience when I deal with this company? Uh, what could I do with this new technology? Uh, how could I deploy that in a way and in combination in an appropriate business model that, uh, people would really want to buy and willing to pay, people or businesses would be willing to pay. So I think opportunity is something we can train ourselves to look for. 
We can look to history to say, here's how Uber did it, or here's how Rent the Runway did it, or here's how Guild Education did it. Here are the good things that occurred, and some of them failed. And the second thing is really about failure, which is failure is like a failure in in experiments. Thomas Edison said, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I learned 10,000 ways that something wouldn't work. And uh, persistence is critical. Uh, Creativity is critical. Um, Creating a team that you may have great technical engineering expertise, but you need someone who can read the voice of the customer, whether it's Volkswagen or you know, someone in um, Cologne. Uh, and uh, so it, teams create value, not individuals. Ideas have to be diverse. Getting a diverse team is critical and uh, not fearing failure. Just uh, unless you cause it, you're good. Bill and I thank you very much for sharing this experience with us. Entrepreneurial Reality is available on major podcast platforms where you can find other inspiring presentations. Do subscribe if you like this podcast and want to hear more. Do give us a rating. Let your friend know about it. And we look forward to having you for more Entrepreneurial Realities.